Thank you, Ian. It's good to be with you once again. And before I begin, I just want to read um, a short psalm, but it's a, a significant psalm. It's Psalm 121. I will lift up my eyes to the hills, from whence comes my help. My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord shall preserve you from all evil. He shall preserve your soul. The Lord shall preserve your, the Lord shall preserve your going out and your coming in from this time forth and even forevermore. Well, I've been asked to speak on the life of David Livingstone. Um, I'll try to not make it boring, but I do need to read the information that I've got. So I'll, um, I hope you'll bear with me in that. I think most of you, if not all of you, will know that for well over a thousand years, Westminster Abbey has been the centre of the pomp and the pageantry of the nation. It's the place where most kings and queens have been crowned and where state funerals have taken place for the great and the good of the land. And numbers of those kings and queens and national heroes are buried inside the Abbey itself, and in one corner, known as Poet's Corner, there are memorials to the great men of literature and letters and classical learning, and most recently, Stephen Hawking. Well, if you're a casual visitor, you may walk up the centre aisle trying to get a sense of history, and you may be totally unaware that you are walking over a very simple grave and a memorial of somebody who was not of the royal blood, nor a great statesman, or a warrior, or a famous poet. It's the grave of a man who was born in obscurity and in abject poverty, and yet his life and labours drew the attention and the admiration not only of the British people, but of multitudes around the world. Sadly, his name is hardly known today. This is the inscription on that gravestone which for four successive monarchs have walked across as they've gone to their coronation. It says, Brought by faithful hands over land and sea, here rests David Livingstone, missionary, traveller, philanthropist. For 30 years his life was spent in an unwearied effort to evangelise the native races, to explore the undiscovered secrets of Africa, to abolish the desolating slave, tra slave trade of Central Africa, where, with his last words, he wrote, All I can add in my solitude is may heaven's rich blessing come down on everyone, American, English or Turk, who will help to heal this open sore of the world. There are quotations on either side of that gravestone with the inscriptions, one from John chapter 10 and verse 16. Other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice. Then the inscription on the south side concerns Livingston's search for the source of the river Nile. It's in Latin, and it can be translated, So great is my love of truth, that there is nothing I would rather know than the sources of the river which lay hid for so many centuries. Queen Victoria sent a wreath to be placed on the coffin, and that was buried with him. Livingstone had travelled 29,000 miles in Africa, and he added to the known portions of the globe about one million square miles. He discovered many famous lakes, the river Zambezi, many other rivers. He was the first white man to see the Victoria Falls, and probably the first individual to traverse the entire length of Lake Tanganyika. Had his health not failed, he would have also succeeded in discovering the source of the River Nile. He was made a British consul, a member of the Royal Geographical Society. He received gold medals from the Geographical Society of Great Britain 
the United States and France and Italy. Still regarded in certain quarters as one of the greatest explorers and Christian missionaries that Africa has ever known, and perhaps the only missionary who's ever received a state funeral in Westminster Abbey. Until a few years ago, if you'd lived in Scotland, you would have known that his portrait was still printed on the £10 note of the Clydesdale Bank. Now, why and what was the reason why he became such a well-known figure? And how did he engage in such an immense task? Well, that's the aim of this paper. He was born in a small cotton mill town named Blantyre, about eight miles from Glasgow on the banks of the River Clyde. His forebears were among the hardy people who had come to the mainland of Scotland from a very tiny remote island named the island of Staffa in the North Atlantic. On arriving on the mainland, the Livingston family settled in Blantyre and his father worked first as a tailor and then made a moderate living as a tea merchant. His father, Neil Livingston, was a devout Christian man with a warm, tender heart, deep convictions, a great reader of good books and a committed member of the Congregational Church. Family worship, morning and evening, regular attendance at church, strict observance of the Sabbath and total abstinence were the marked characteristics of his life and of his home. His wife, named Agnes Hunter, he married to her in 1810, a godly, gracious, tender woman who shared all of his high ideals and whose gentle nature was a counterbalance to that of his. She was always active and orderly and had a keen eye for cleanliness, something that she instilled into her children. And that had a deep impression on David Livingston when during the roughest times in Africa, he never slackened in his habits of personal hygiene and his concern for his own personal appearance. Five sons and two daughters were born to the Livingstons and two sons died in infancy. And the family lived in a tenement building shared by 24 other families with no inside running water. And if you want to go to Blantyre, that building is now a museum to David Livingston, still there, preserved exactly as it was in David Livingston's day, where the family lived, cooked, ate and slept in one room, which measures 14 foot by 10 foot. The black fireplace provided not only the much needed warmth in the winter, but also the heat for cooking and for boiling water. And David and his brothers lost count of the times that they had to walk down the tightly curved winding brick staircase to bring water from a pump in the yard, heaving it back up the stairs to the third floor and to their room. There was one outside toilet for about 50 people. So from his childhood, he showed an unusual love for nature and with great perseverance, which always characterized his life, he gained a number of academic prizes and he excelled his playmates in many different ways. At the age of 10, you find him making his own living in the cotton mills while spending his evenings in the night school. He was awakened at 5.30 in the morning, having gulped down a plate of warm porridge, he would make his way to the large grim building where he worked from six in the morning until eight in the evening. His job, along with many other young boys, was to look for and to mend any threads of cotton that broke on the loom. And this required the boys to be agile enough to climb under and over the machinery. And it involved them traveling over 20 miles in a day, running up and down, often crawling and in stooping positions. And the men who were working the machines were paid by the amount of cotton that they produced. So they kept these young boys on their toes, gave them a severe thrashing if they made any mistakes. And the steamy temperature for the spinning of the cotton was 20, 80 to 90 degrees Fahrenheit. That's 32 degrees Celsius. Well, today I think it's been about 21 to 23. So if you can imagine another... 10, 11 degrees hotter than it is. That was the temperature in the cotton mill. And throughout the long days, the boys had half an hour's break for breakfast and one hour for lunch. 
and that was six full days a week. So that was his environment for the next 10 years of his life. And many of the children were so exhausted at the end of the day, they had no energy to play or time for anything else. Some of them, however, including David, would defy their aching bodies and make their way to the company's school to work from eight o'clock until 10 o'clock in the evening. He would then come home to study and to read, his mother frequently having to take his books off him so that he would go to sleep. During the day in the mill, he would prop his book on the spinning jenny so that he could catch sentence after sentence as he passed to and fro doing his work. With part of his first wages, he purchased a copy of Rudiments, Rudiments of Latin, the language which he studied for many years. At the age of 12, he came under great conviction concerning the state of his soul. His parents had sought by prayer and precept and example to show him the love of Christ in the gospel. And now their young boy was being wrought on by the Holy Spirit. He'd already been discovering the wonders of the natural world, keen stu student of plants and rocks and fossils, and now he's being confronted with eternal issues and concerning the state of his own soul. So he went under a long period of deep conviction of sin and, and a sense of unworthiness, and that eventually led to his conversion. He was also helped by an older Christian whose wise instruction caused him to realize that religion and science were friendly to each other. And another old Christian spoke to him from his deathbed and he said this, Now lad, make religion the everyday business of your life and not a thing of fits and starts, for if you do not, temptation and other things will get the better of you. Well, as a result of reading the life of Henry Martin, he made these statements which became the tenor and the tone of his life from then on. In the glow of the love that Christianity is inspired, I resolve to devote my life to the alleviation of human misery. It is my desire to show my attachment to the cause of him who died for me by devoting my life to his service. He continued laboring six days a week, saving his money so that he might be able to go to university. He'd achieved what few of those mill workers had been able to do. He'd become literate. He'd mastered Latin. He was grounded in botany, and he had a good grasp of theology. And his father, after a certain amount of reluctance, finally agreed that, his, his, that David's desire to become a doctor and to be a missionary and preach the gospel, his father agreed for him to do that. So at the age of 23, he set out with his father to walk the eight miles to Glasgow to find the accommodation where he could live during his time of study. He studied Greek and theology under Dr. Ralph Wardlaw at the university, and he studied medicine at Anderson's College of Medicine. And these were the days before chloroform. Dr. John Brown, who was the grandson of the famous John Brown of Haddington, and he was a medical doctor, describes in one of the books that he's written how they had to do a mastectomy on an elderly lady without any kind of anaesthetic. And Dr. Brown said that anaesthetic is one of the greatest gifts of God to mankind. And whenever I've gone to the dentist, I've told the dentist that. Well, those operations were hurried through without anesthesia Antiseptics were not yet to be discovered. Nothing was known about the diseases that David Livingston would encounter in Africa, such as malaria and blackwater fever. But despite all the inadequacies, he studied hard, learned as much as he could about the use of surgical instruments, at the same time keeping himself abreast of all the latest developments in medicine and surgery. And that knowledge was put to great use later on. He applied then to the London Missionary Society to become a missionary in China. If you ever go to the, um, the museum in Blantyre, you'll see the original letters that he wrote to the London Missionary Society, a wonderful copperplate handwriting. But there's no doubt about it where he stood theologically. He was Calvinistic, 
and reformed, and his main intention was to bring the gospel to the people in Africa. Well, he applied to the London Missionary Society. After a delay, they responded. He was accepted, required to do some further training in London. And while he was in London, he met a remarkable South African missionary, Dr. Robert Moffat, who persuaded him that he should go to Africa and not to China. Well, Moffat told him about a vast plain to the north of the mission station where he was, and he says that sometimes by the light of the morning sun could be seen the smoke of a thousand villages where no missionary had ever been. So that was the challenge to David Livingstone, and he set his heart to go to South Africa. All he had was a single night to spend with his family back in Glasgow before he ne left. A night in which the family hardly slept, they talked about all the prospects that lay before him. It was still dark when they knelt down at five o'clock on that bleak November morning, with David himself leading the household to the throne of grace in prayer. He'd already selected the psalm that he wished to read, that Psalm 121. And then there was the anguish of farewell, an anguish which was softened by the way that he commended his family and himself to God's care and to God's keeping. And in the grey light of a wintry morning, the father and son set out on their long, cheerless eight-mile tramp to Glasgow. And I lived in Glasgow for many years and passed the spot on the Broomilaw in Glasgow that witnessed their parting, and from which the old father turned sadly back to Blantyre with the words of Psalm 121 ringing in his ears. And David set his face toward darkest Africa. And in those days, strange to say, if you were going to Africa or to India, you had to cross the Atlantic to go to South America. And then you cross the Atlantic back again, and that's what he did and came to Cape Town. Stepped ashore beneath Table Mountain, and little did he realize how many problems and how much suffering was to be his lot in that continent. The African interior was still a mystery to the outside world despite a huge traffic in slaves. The Arabs to the south of the Sahara had never ventured very far from the coast. They simply relied on the native tribes to bring gold and ivory and slaves from the interior. Transport was difficult, thick tropical forests, rivers that were full of rapids, and the deadly disease of malaria was widespread. And all of those difficulties had deterred the most enthusiastic explorers who looked at the state of the natives and couldn't see anything in Africa that they couldn't obtain anywhere else apart from the Africans themselves. And most of South Africa had been colonized by the Dutch and, and the British. And there was a widespread, disagree widespread disagreement about the freeing of the slaves and the abolition of the slave trade. And among the various missionaries he found working there, there was a good deal of tension and infighting and differences of opinion about the abolition of the slave trade. And Livingston expressed his concern and disgust with characteristic bluntness. He says, I see it of great importance that missionaries should be united and not spend time grinning at each other while the devil is leading sinners around and down the sides of the bottomless pit. Well, he would find that bluntness, especially in condemning the slave trade, would make him very, very unpopular. From Cape Town, he moved northward to the interior where Moffat was at work in the Betuana Territory. And you'll have to excuse my pronunciations of some of these African names. He purchased ox wagons and supplies and set off on the 530-mile trek. Travel was slow and tortuous, two or three laborers leading the oxen from the front and driving them from behind. My wife and I, a number of years ago, we took a car journey along the very same route. And at one point we had to travel over an hour, nearly two hours, over the roughest unsurfaced road that we'd ever seen. And it wound itself through this long, steep mountain pass. 
And it's difficult to believe that these early settlers, including Livingston, had driven ox carts over that very same route. Well, he stopped at the same place that we did. We stopped in a little place called Grafrinet. And he described it as the prettiest town of all Africa. But he met two Christians there who he said was worth going 200 miles to make the acquaintance of them. And this was Andrew Murray and his wife. He had established the Dutch Reformed Church in that town of Grafrinet. From there, they proceeded north until they eventually reached their destination at Kuruman. And on the way, he was incensed at the unkind treatment of the natives by various Europeans. He would mingle freely among the natives, healing their diseases, and very quickly he disarmed any kind of hostility. His intense desire that all natives should have an, an opportunity to embrace Christianity and his decided preference to labour where no man had ever worked before. So that made him relocate again and again as he moved northward into the interior, establishing mission stations as he went. Now, two qualities of his life manifested themselves immediately. Characteristics were to, which were to demonstrate his future greatness. And one was the ability to cope with the difficulties of travel whether it was by ox wagon, horse, or on foot. And second, a quick understanding and a sympathy for the native Af Africans. From the moment he landed on African soil, he was haunted night and day by visions that beckoned and voices that called to him out of the undiscovered regions. A few months after his arrival in Karaman, he made a journey covering over 700 miles, winning the confidence of the natives wherever he went, by his medical activity. A second trip was made to the interior from February to June in 1842, when he returned again to Kuruman until February 1843, all the time teaching, preaching, caring for the sick, building at a, a chapel at an outstation, crowds of sick folk begging him, the great white doctor, to heal them. At night around the fire, they would listen, he would listen to their stories, and then he would tell them all about Jesus. And the only problem with the area of the mission station where he was, was that it was infested with lions. And Livingston decided that he would rid the valley of the lions, because he heard that if one lion in a troop of lions was killed, then the rest would leave the area. So he took a native worker with him, and then happened one of the most famous incidents in his life. He was attacked by a lion. The lion pounced on him by surprise. He managed to shoot at it. And then as he began to reload his gun, the wounded lion sprang up on him, shook him as a cat shakes a rat, and left his arm crushed to the bone. The native helper had grabbed his gun, and seeing the motion of the upraised gun, the lion turned from Livingston and sp sprang upon the native and brought him down to the ground. Another worker, seeing what was going on, came with a spear and the lion was toppled over dead. Livingston's arm was stiff and useless from then on. And whenever he raised it, intense pain shot through his body. His left arm had, had a substantial loss of power for the rest of his life. He returned to Kuruman to have his arm treated and to recuperate. Now, although he was unmarried when he left for Africa, upon his arrival he met the daughter of Robert Moffat, and an interest developed between them. In his eyes, Mary Moffat was looking prettier every day, and eventually they made plans to marry, and as soon as his arm had healed, he would hasten back to Mabotza and build her a comfortable little house. They were married in March 1844, with Robert Moffat performing the ceremony. Then came a 200-mile ox wagon honeymoon to the little home in Mabotza, where they remained till 1845. Now, it was late in 1845 that Livingston moved to another location, Kolabeng, where Secheli, the chief of the tribes, became his first convert. 
Now, these moves were just the first steps of many that were going to characterize his life. Each letter ended with the words, who will penetrate the heart of Africa? He was sickened at heart when he heard of well-fed Christians at home engaged in hair-splitting discussions over doctrinal themes when millions were dying without the gospel where he was. At last he began another tour during which he crossed the Kalahari Desert where for days he had no water. Overcoming insurmountable difficulties, he discovered Lake Ngami. The local chief welcomed him, but because of the unhealthy conditions, the situation didn't prove suitable for a mission station. He, he conceived the idea that if a way were opened from the interior of Africa to the coast, Christianity, civilization, and commerce would move freely between the various peoples. But the undertaking involved tremendous hardships and a great deal of self-denial. And it was about this time that he wrote this, I place no value on anything I have or possess except in relation to the kingdom of Christ. Now for the sake of his wife, who had now borne him three children, he tried hard to settle down to life in an ordinary mission station, but it was impossible. The call of the distant lands constantly beckoned him. He could always see on the far horizon the smoke of a thousand native settlements where no white man or missionary had ever been. So he goes to some of those settlements, and on his arrival, he sees the smoke of other settlements even further away. And the tales that the natives tell him of vast inland seas and of huge waterfalls, they tantalize him beyond his endurance. He sees the three great rivers, the Nile, the Congo, and the Zambezi, emptying themselves into three separate oceans. And he convinces himself that the man who can solve the riddle of their sources can open up the whole continent to commerce and civilization. But most of all, missionaries could then bring the Christian gospel. So he goes on and on along these tortuous slave tracks, littered everywhere with bones, through the forests, the marshes, the bogs, the deserts where no man had ever gone before. He makes a score of discoveries, any one of which would have established his fame, but none of them satisfy him. In 1856, 15 years after he landed in Africa, he is surrounded by hostile and infuriated savages. His life had never before seemed to be in such imminent danger. Death was staring him in the face. He's thinking of his life's work as being hardly begun. And for the first time in his experience, he's, in he's tempted to steal away under cover of darkness and to try to get away in the night. But he prays to the Lord. And listen to what he says in his journal. January 14, 1856, evening. Felt much turmoil of spirit in prospect of having all my plans for the welfare of this great region and all this teeming population knocked on the head by savages tomorrow. All power is given unto me in heaven and on earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. And then he writes, It is the word of a gentleman of the most strict and sacred honour, so there's an end of it. I will not cross furtively tonight as I intended. Should such a man as I flee, no, verily I shall take observations for latitude and longitude tonight, though they may be the last. I feel quite calm now, thank God. Now those words, it is the word of a gentleman of the most strict and sacred honour, so there's an end of it, were underlined in his journal and they were underlined in his heart. He trusted the word of Christ with every fibre of his being. Christ said, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. So he's now determined to open up a way to the west, to the Atlantic coast. So in the middle of 1853, he reaches Lignante on the Zambezi. And here the chief Sekeletu gave him all the assistance for the journey that he wanted. So the missionary, a few tusks, coffee, beads, and so on, 
accompanied with 27 Barotsi men, some oxen, they threw him, he threw himself into the heart of Africa. On November the 11th, after seven months of untold hardship, he reached the west coast. And during the journey, he had 31 attacks of fever. And towards its close, these were accompanied by the worst kind of dysentery. He suffered untold pain and discomfort from bleeding hemorrhoids. He, he had bleeding hemorrhoids for years, often having to stay in his tent and then being carried by his native help, helpers for days on end through the forests and across the rivers, constantly destitute of food, especially the kind of food that he would need in that condition. And all along the way, he witnessed the horrors of polygamy and of incest and of cannibalism. It was the practice in some tribes that if a baby cut the teeth in the upper gum before cutting the ones on the lower, then the baby must be put to death. The cruelties of slavery seen in families broken up, gangs chained, bodies of those that perish from indescribable brutalities lying by the wayside or their skeletons hanging from trees, others floating down the river until at night they interfered with the paddles of his boat. All these kinds of evidences of the slave trade really impressed his heart. The slaves were manacled in heavy chains. The men had their necks placed in a fork of stout wood about six or seven feet long and then an iron rod was placed across the throat area and riveted at both ends. And that would only be removed when they reached the coast and were placed on board ships bound for America and elsewhere. And along the route, Livingston met the slave parties, and on occasions, he and his native helpers challenged the slavers and were able to release almost a thousand slaves. Well, the little party eventually arrived at St. Paul de Luanda on the west coast. Nobody expected him to arrive, so there was no mail awaiting him. A boat offered him passage to England, but he refused because he promised to return the native helpers to their chief. Although he was desperately needing to rest and regain his health, after a short period he started back again into the interior with his men. When the news reached England that he was alive, astonishment and admiration filled the minds of the nation. The Royal Geographical Society awarded him its highest honour, which was a gold medal. A journey of 2,000 miles was before Livingston as he began his return trip from the west coast eastward. More hostile tribes had to be met, tactfully handled, and many new dangers along the way. After arriving at Lignanti in September 1855, he went down the Zambezi River, discovered the famous beautiful Victoria Falls, the first white man ever to see them. On May the 20th, 1856, he reached the East Coast and thus covered a territory never before traversed by a white man. After 16 years of absence, he made his first visit back to England, arriving in December 1856. If he'd risen from the grave, he couldn't have been looked upon with more interest or loaded with more honours. Societies and colleges and others vied with each other to do him honour. And while he was at home, he wrote his first book entitled Missionary Travels, which was a great success, had a powerful impact in awakening interest in Africa. He visited his native Scotland, went to the University of Glasgow. They confirmed upon him the degree of Doctor of Laws. And on those kind of occasions, the subject or the recipient is usually given a great deal of banter at the hands of the students. But when Livingston rises to speak, bearing on his body the marks of his struggles and his sufferings in Africa, he's received in reverential silence. He's gaunt and haggard as a result of his long exposure to the tropical sun. On nearly 30 occasions, he'd been laid low by the fevers from the putrid swamps, and that has left its mark. His left arm, which had been crushed by the lion, hangs limply at his side. A hush falls upon the great assembly as he announces his resolve to return to the land for which he has already endured so much. And here I quote, But I return, he says, 
without misgiving and with great gladness. For would you like me to tell you what supported me through all the years of exile among the people whose language I could not understand and whose attitude toward me was always uncertain and often hostile? It was this, Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. And on that pledge he constantly hazarded everything that he had, and that pledge never failed him. Now on that trip to England, a very serious matter gave cause for concern and had to be settled. The London Missionary Society who'd sent him out felt that it wasn't right for him to use his time exploring the country. And Livingstone had a strong conviction that the end of the exploration is the beginning of the enterprise for the gospel. So disappointed and disillusioned, he withdrew from the London City Mission, London uh, Missionary Society and engaged himself with the Royal Geographical Society and went out as the Queen's Consul to Africa on full government pay. On March the 10th, 1858, the Livingstons, together with their son, sailed from England. His wife Mary had never been strong enough to be the wife of a pioneer. She'd struggled for years through the dusty deserts and trackless jungles, seeing no other woman but the native women around her. But with the little children at her skirts, David knew that she couldn't struggle for long. He'd previously taken his wife and children to Cape Town, where amid many tears he saw them sail for England in April 1852. Mary had stayed at home and prayed for her husband, who pressed tirelessly on. When she eventually returned to Cape Town, she became so ill that she had to remain behind, and so she didn't rejoin her husband for uh, several years. But even in Africa, the people will talk, and the gossips went to work, and they spread the rumours that the marriage was unhappy, and that he couldn't have couldn't stand to have her with him. Even a bishop of the Church of England published a pamphlet to say that they had a broken marriage. Well, hearing of the scandal and being stung by it, David Livingstone in a weak moment sent for his wife to join him. She made a hazardous trek to be with him, and as a result she took ill, and her last days are among the saddest scenes of his life. He made a bed for her out of some old tea chests and a mattress. And the man who had faced so many dangers and braved so many hazards is now a broken man. And he sits there for days, seeking to comfort her. Oh Mary, he cried, I loved you when I married you, and the longer I lived with you, I loved you the more. And then he held her hand until she died. And then he buried her beneath a large boabab tree. And in his journal he says this, For the first time in my life I feel willing to die. I am left alone in the world by one whom I felt to be a part of myself. And again he remembered the words of Christ, Lo, I am with you always. And relying on the word of a, strict, of a gentleman of the strictest and sacred honour, he set himself once again, to evangelize the native races, to explore the undiscovered secrets, and to abolish the terrible slave trade. Evangelization, exploration, and emancipation. Some men set themselves to evangelize, some set themselves to explore, and some set themselves to em emancipate. And David Livingston set himself to do all three. And no man ever set himself a more arduous task, and no man ever set about it with a more serene and joyous confidence. But he found many obstacles. The Dutch Boers, who had robbed and subjected the natives to the worst slavery, opposed his efforts to the extent that they destroyed his home and took away all his household goods. Undaunted by opposition, he continued exploring the regions round about, preaching, teaching, healing, making notes of his geographical and scientific observations, forwarding them to England, and by this means he sought to do his Heavenly Father's will. He wrote in his journal, As for me, I am determined to open up Africa or perish. He explored the mouth of the Zambezi, made three trips to the Shire River, 
and at last discovered Lake Nyasa. And through all these years, he was establishing sites for missions, preaching the gospel, healing the sick, contributing religious and scientific articles to periodicals in England. His accounts of the atrocities of the slave trade stirred the whole world. The following year, while exploring the region around Lake Nyasa, he was asked to return home by the British government. He returned with the purpose of exposing the slave trade and to obtain a means to open a mission north of the Portuguese territory. His new book, The Zambezi and its Tributaries, 4,800 copies of which sold the first evening it was on the market, awakened deep interest in Africa, stirred up great indignation against the Portuguese because of its revelations of their treatment of the natives. While at home, Livingston, with his aged mother and his children, except one, had a family reunion. Robert, the absent son, had first gone to Africa to find his father. Failing in his attempt, he had sailed for America, and he enlisted in the Federal Army, and was wounded, taken prisoner, and died and was buried in the National Cemetery at Gettysburg. So while the father was giving his life for the freedom of the black slaves in Africa, the son gave his life for the freedom of the same slaves in America. Well, Livingston declined to return to Africa under the auspices of the Royal Geographical Society, who simply wanted him to determine the watershed of the continent. Every inducement was offered to him to accomplish this would have been the crowning achievement of his explorations, but he had higher ideals. His greatest concern was to preach the gospel, help and heal, help and heal the African, and not give up his missionary purposes. These were still the impelling motives of all his efforts. He made Ujiji the centre of his many explorations, but his equipment upon his return to Africa was not as good as it should have been, and many reverses met him. His helpers proved of little help. Some of his people were ill-behaved and had to be dismissed. Others forsook him, reported, him that, to, reported that he was dead, and in spite of this, he press, pressed forward. His medicine chest disappeared. He reached Lake Tanganyika. He discovered Lake Moero, afterwards Lake Bangiwolo, suffered from sickness, returned to Ujiji to find all of his household goods had gone. The two years from 1869 July to October 71 were perhaps the saddest years of his life. He beheld the thousand villages about which Moffat had told him, which caused him to give his life to Africa. He preached to thousands and ten thousands of natives, but his strength failed him in 1871. His feet were sore from ulcers, his teeth were falling out through sickness. Weary of body, sick of heart, he lay in his hut for 80 days, longing for home, which was now far beyond his reach. His sole comfort and help was his Bible, which he says he read through four times during that period in his tent, and upon the flyleaf fly of which he wrote these words, No letters for three years. I have a sore longing to finish and go home, if God wills. Well, the outside world were mystified as to his whereabouts, and many of them believed that he'd long since died. Well, supplies and letters had been sent, but they were intercepted by the Portuguese. The Royal Geographical Society sent out a search party, but they couldn't find him. And just at that moment of mystery concerning his whereabouts, James Gordon Bennett of the New York Herald sent Henry Morton Stanley to locate the explorer and he gave him finances and he said, you must find him at any cost. Now, Stanley's effort was a marvellous adventure in itself, so you really need a paper on that in this series. Uh, and once Stanley wrote this, no living man shall stop me, only death can prevent me. But death, not even this. I shall not die, I will not die, I cannot die. Something tells me that I shall find him. And I write it larger, find him, find him. Well, it took Stanley over two years to find Livingston. And he arrived, as many Americans would do, with a huge entourage of people and supplies and food and clothing and even a bath. Well, 
It was a glad day for Livingston. Letters, supplies were abundant. Stanley had brought them. He forgot his ailments. He became overjoyed at this Good Samaritan Act. And together, those two men spent four months exploring Lake Tanganyika. And Stanley became a hero worshipper of his companion. And there's no indication at this time that Stanley was a Christian. And he wrote this, I challenge any man to find a fault in Livingston's character. The secret is that his religion is a constant, earnest, and, and sincere practice. Well, in his early life, Livingston had said, anywhere, providing it is forward. And so that was what impelled him, even in his old age. So instead of returning with Stanley, as he could have done, he made a resolve that he was still going to press on into the interior of Africa. On March the 19th, 1872, when he was 59 years old, he wrote, My birthday, my Jesus, my King, my life, my all. I again dedicate my whole self to you. Well, the footsore explorer went forward through swollen rivers, dismal swamps, every day of the march being marked with dysentery and the most excruciating pains. And his love for the Africans was such that he was willing to endure the most awful experiences in order to win them for Christ. And at every convenient place, he would have his carriers to stop and let him rest, try to get relief from these bleeding hemorrhoids. April the 29th was his last day of travel. He'd reached the village of Chitambo in Ilala. Extremely sick, near the point of death, he made his observations, carefully brought his journal up to date, drew maps and gave orders. He rested quietly on the 30th, but at four on the morning of May the 1st, 1873, the boy who slept at Livingston's door wakened and beheld his master, and fearing death, he went and called Susie. Susie was one of the native helpers that he had freed. And by the candle still burning, they saw him, not in bed, but kneeling at the bedside, with his head buried in his hands upon the pillow. The sad, yet not unexpected truth soon became evident. He had died. No white man near, no woman to nurse him, no friend to strengthen his faith by reading him the scriptures. He died alone, and yet not alone. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. It is the word of a gentleman of the most strict and sacred honour, so there's an end of it. And that word of honour had not been violated. But he had died in the act of prayer, prayer offered in that reverent attitude about which he was always so particular, kneeling at his bedside, commending his own spirit, his loved ones as he was wont, into the hands of the Saviour, and commending Africa, his own dear Africa, with all her woes and sins and wrongs, commending them to the Redeemer of the lost. His last entry in his journal says this, He will keep his word, the gracious one, full of grace and truth, no doubt of it, he will keep his word, and it will be all right. Doubt is inadmissible, surely. And that pathetic figure on his knees is the best testimony to the way in which Christ's promise was kept. And words can never do justice to the noble course which his faithful servants, led by Susie, now took. They removed the heart from the body of their dead leader. They buried it under a tree near where he died. They dried the body in the sun and decided to take it to the coast where it could be shipped back to England. They tied it to a pole, set out on the thousand-mile trek through forests, swamps, rivers and ravines. Sickness plagued them. Ten men died and others were at death's door. After nine months' march, the faithful Africans who had the highest regard for him reached the coast at a place called Bagamoyo, which means lay down the burden of your heart. And this they did, and surrendered the body of their loving friend to the British consul in Zanzibar, who then shipped his body to England. And there was a debate as to whether this really was Livingston. And when the doctors 
looked at the body and examined it. They could see the arm that had been injured all his life and it was confirmed that that's who it was. On April the 18th, 1874, the remains were laid to rest amidst the greatest honours in Westminster Abbey in London. And the news of his death quickened the, the pulse beat of the world and roused many thousands to accept his interpretation of his own efforts. The end of the exploration is the beginning of the Christian enterprise. And Africa at once became the favoured field for missionary enterprise from almost every Christian denomination. Now in recent years, with revisionist historians, it's become the practice to debunk any kind of hero or heroism. And that's true of David Livingstone. Many have criticized him for being an explorer and a failed missionary, pointing to the fact that he didn't see many converts. And the problem is they fail to realize that David Livingstone was a man of the highest order and the highest standards. And he would only speak of somebody being converted truly if after several years they were giving a credible evidence of that profession and living righteously. Now his legacy was after his death, the whole continent of Africa was opened up to the spread of the gospel and for world trade and the terrible slave trade was eventually abolished. In many places still in Africa, Livingstone is regarded with the highest esteem. Countless streets and buildings in Zambia named after him. Town near Victoria Falls bears the name. In Malawi, the capital, Blantyre, is named after his Scottish birthplace. David Livingstone struggled and sowed in tears, and he never gave up his endeavors to win lost sheep for Christ. Through the providence of God, that seed that he sowed eventually germinated, and millions have come to faith in Christ in Africa. And as a result of this one man, Africa is no longer regarded as the dark continent. Well, there you have it, David Livingstone. Thank you, Ian. There are one or two books that you can get of his life. Um, I have one on by James McNeil, which is a good uh, story of um, Livingston's life. And um, I've only been scratching the surface. There's so much more that you can find. Thank you, Ian.